So when this letter was written, the Apostle Paul was in prison in Rome. We'll get more to that in just a little bit. But here's a man who's serving a several-year sentence in Rome. He writes this letter because he gets a visit from the church that he helped plant years before the letter was written. The church sent to Paul as both an encourager and a bearer of gifts in, in monetary fashion, the church sent Epaphroditus to go to Paul and encourage Paul and to give report to Paul about what had been going on with the church. And Paul is tremendously encouraged. This is why the letter to the Philippians or the book of Philippians is a book of joy. That's why the dominating theme is both encouragement and joy. And what Paul does throughout this book is he kind of links together the root of joy And he says, look, basically, here it is. The riches of your joy is found exclusively in the depths of Christ. Because as we go through the book of Philippians, that is the resounding phrase. That's the phrase that keeps getting turned. Is this, or the concept that keeps getting turned is the idea of joy. You have joy in suffering, that you have joy that can be made complete in Christ. He talks about his joy for them in prayer. Listen to the opening of this verse, as Austin just read. I thank my God. This is in prison. He's heard these words. Epaphroditus has come, and he says, let me give you a report, Paul. Let me give you a report of the, of the church that you helped plant. Let me encourage you with these words. You're in prison. I can't do anything about that, but you're in prison, so let me encourage you. And the response to that encouragement is, I thank God in all my remembrance of you. Notice that Paul didn't say, hey, do you have any lawyers or any kind of legal professionals that can kind of work their way to get me out of this mess? You know, I'd I'd like to go and be with you guys. Instead, I've kind of been stuck in Rome for a few years now. So so is is it possible that you can send somebody? You don't hear anything about that in the book of Philippians, but how he leaves the gate is, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer, mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. Why? Why is it that his prayers, after being beaten on a number of occasions, after being shipwrecked, after going through all that he had gone through, after facing physical anguish, mental and spiritual anguish. How can someone sit there and write, I thank God for you, and in my prayers, there is great joy when I remember you. What kind of connection did he have with this church at Philippi? Listen, if I'm in jail, and I've had a good experience with Haven Ridge thus far, and I'm in jail, and you write to me, I'm gonna be like, look, I'm a sissy. You know, send me Twinkies, something. I need, I need some comfort food. I need something going on here. I'm, 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 I'm miserable. I would struggle, I think. I'm not, I'm not comparing myself to the man that Paul was, but I would really, really struggle because I know me and I know that I'm weak and Paul would say the same thing of himself. But here, he's writing to them and instead of pleading his case and instead of saying, hey, send more people, come help me, he's saying, I remember you with deep, loving affections and I am joyful. I am, I am in prison and I am joyful. And here's the Why? because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. There is a direct correlation between our joy 
and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is how Paul comes out of the gate. And this is the resounding phrase that we will see all throughout the book of Philippians. But what I want to do today is I wanna give you an introduction to the book. And I'm gonna do something that probably no one could anticipate. So we're gonna go through an introduction of the book, which sometimes can be very historical, very technical. I don't think it will be that much. If you were here for our, for, for, we did a short Q&A session for about a month and a half, and one of the questions was about talking through Revelation, and I explained the different views. That was very technical if you were here for that. Very, very technical, okay? This is not gonna be so technical. I think that this will interest you. You don't have to be in history buff to be interested by this. Um, it's just great, great stuff, and it helps set the foundation for understanding the book of Philippians. It really does, because I'm going to assume you're like me, and most of this stuff you didn't know. You know, so part of my job is relaying that information to you and showing how God providentially worked to plant the church at Philippi. It's an amazing thing, and it, and it really settled with me as I see God, or I saw God working in my life to come here and plant Haven Ridge. You know, so it's, it's, it's a neat thing to be on this side of it and have this experience and look at Paul's experience and to go back and study what had happened. So, so let's do a little bit of an introduction to the book of Philippi. Okay, so this is, we call it a book, but it's a letter, right? You know this, this is an epistle. It's an epistle. An epistle is a personal letter. Now, Paul wrote several epistles. He wrote several personal letters to different churches. The, this is specifically called a prison epistle, because there were a number of epistles that he had written while in prison. He wrote to Colossae, he wrote, uh, he wrote the book of Philemon, he wrote to the church in Ephesus, and he wrote to the, book, to the church at Philippi while he was in prison. And all those letters are a little bit different. If you take those letters and you look at them in context, and, and, and you see how Paul is responding, hearing word of how people are doing, he's responding, but Philippians just happens to be one where he has heard a good report of the church at Philippi. And I can't, I can't stress to you how much I can resonate with this because although we are small, if I hear report or if Austin hears report of, hey, I saw this person do this, or I saw this person do that in a good way. Hey, there was a person in need, they helped him out. This person was talking, they shared the gospel. This is a good report for Austin and I to hear. This gives us joy in our prayers. This gives us joy in our remembering you all. Now, there are times where we might not be so happy. There was a spat here. There was a little bit of an issue there. Somebody's acted like a fool. You know, that happens. This is family. We are sinners. But there are so many times that we are so encouraged and we're so full of joy in our remembrance of you from a year ago or two years ago or are now almost three. So this is an epistle. It's a personal letter that's written. But there's a setting to this letter. Paul had planted the church in Philippi. He went on to complete his second missionary journey, followed by a third. So Paul did three missionary journeys, right? And this is one missionary journey would take several months a long time because a part of that journey, he would travel by boat through the Aegean Sea and a lot of it he would travel by land, right? Now, over time, Rome had gotten really good. Rome, the, 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 the superpower of the world at the time, Rome had built certain roads for the military and Paul was able to travel through those. So it was able to kind of expedite or speed up the process over time. But it was a long and arduous journey you know, of, of carrying the gospel to these people. And make no mistake about it, this is what Paul did. This, this is missions. This is where missions, 
the template for missions is we look at the life of Paul and we know what he's doing. He's going and he's suffering. He goes in the city of Lystra during his second missionary journey, Acts chapter 14. He receives a stoning for that. He's presumed dead. He's dragged out of the city gates. The disciples are looking at him thinking he's dead. He gets back up and he goes back into the city. You know, he goes into Philippi and we'll see in just a little bit as Luke represents in the book of Acts, because Luke was there. He's given this account that he eyewitnessed. Luke says that Paul and Silas were beaten mercilessly with a cane. They were incarcerated, thrown in the deepest, darkest, dankest, if that's a word, I've heard it before, dungeon that there is. You know, so these things, this, this, is, this, is, <laughs> this is what happened in his missionary journey. So Paul's in his second missionary journey, and then he ends up in prison, right? He ends up in prison. This is his third missionary journey. Well, we ended up in prison after his third missionary journey, which ended about AD 57, and afterwards he was in prison in Rome. So here he is. He's in prison. Here's the setting. While in prison, Epaphroditus was sent to Paul to give report of the church well-being. Paul, being encouraged and overjoyed, wrote to them in response to the visit from Epaphroditus. So Epaphroditus is kind of the man that brought the good news. And Paul's response was joy. Interestingly, Paul was well thought of in the city of Rome. Now, he was still incarcerated. The Roman officials knew what he was doing. Paul was no stranger to this city. And so they knew what he was doing. I don't think they hated the guy. Well, they eventually killed him. But as far as prisoners go, it was some fair treatment that they gave him. Now, there were times that Paul, such as in the book of Acts chapter 16, as Luke recounts the story, Paul is actually placed in a deep, dark dungeon. Paul is, uh, is kind of really suffering in that area. But this is not that case. Austin posted something on the, uh, on the app last night about kind of a walkthrough of Philippians, which I thought was fantastic, by the way. There's one thing that, as far as what I studied, I thought was inconsistent because when he was in Rome, when he was in prison, it showed him kind of in stocks and in this dark, dank dungeon. But as a matter of fact, when he was in Rome at this time, when he wrote this letter, he was kind of like in kind of like an apartment. You know, now he was under house arrest, but it wasn't locks and, and, and stocks and chains. It was kind of house arrest. He could even have visitors, hence Epaphroditus. So Paul was given some liberties. I mean, he was still very much a prisoner, but he had some liberties even as a prisoner. So it was weird because they gave him some good treatment, but they eventually killed him. So this is the setting. This is where Paul was. Paul went into Rome and was imprisoned. This is around AD 61. So 57 ended the third missionary journey. AD 61 was uh, when he was in prison. And then Paul was martyred about AD 66. So Paul had these reasons for writing this letter to the church. He wrote to thank the church that he founded for their first, their partnership in the gospel. This is, this is how he starts it. First priority, he says, I want, I want to communicate the root of my joy, and that is seeing your partnership with the gospel. Seeing how Paul goes into Philippi, and then a church is born, or at least a local church is born in Philippi. There were already uh, believers there. The local church was born in Philippi, and Paul, uh, and, and Paul goes there, and then, the, well, the local church is born, and now He's hearing word that they're doing the work as a church. So what has happened? So now there's pastors there, there's elders, there's deacons. And so these elders are leading well, these deacons are doing their job. And the church is functioning as a church. They're living out 
the gospel. They're living out the purpose of the church. These pastors are doing what? Equipping the saints for the work of service. Their service is they're continuing the gospel message. They're continuing this gospel endeavor to, to, to see the kingdom of God expand through heart regeneration and gospel transformation. And that's his first priority is to say, I am overjoyed because of your partnership in the gospel. He also writes to thank them for the monetary support while he was in jail. So evidently, Epaphroditus brought him money. The scripture says that. And he was obviously allowed to make purchases with this money, showing, again, a little bit of freedom that he had while he was incarcerated. He also wrote to provide spiritual guidance or counsel because there were some issues going on and they still leaned on Paul because of his influence. So Epaphroditus comes and says, hey, there's some issues going on. There's some things that are happening you know, we'd love your wisdom. We'd love your counsel on this issue. And so Paul shares his wisdom. He shares his counsel and he writes to them. And that's, we're gonna see that. We're gonna see the issues that are going on. Although it's a good church, it's a healthy church, there's still issues because you have sinners that are told to live in close proximity to one another and do life together, right? So that's a recipe for sinners to be sinful. And so, and so he writes to give them guidance and counsel. He writes to encourage gladness. And this is interesting. Rather than saying, hey, Remember me as I'm in prison. He says, don't think about me. <laughs> he says, divert your attention away from me. He says, don't be sorrowful. Don't be sad about my situation. I mean, this is where Paul gets into this issue of, listen, if, if, if I'm to live, it's Christ. If I'm to die, it's gain. He says, for me to, 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 to go and be with Christ is far greater, but it's necessary that I remain in the body for your sake, so that he can continue to pray and to be an encourager and Lord willing, if he gets out of prison, continue sharing the gospel. But you better believe while he's in prison, he's being a faithful gospel witness. So he's writing to gladden their hearts, to help to turn their attention away from him and his troubles and towards the gospel. And towards the gospel, because that which is fueling his joy, he wants to keep bringing that in, and that's their partnership in the gospel. As long as there's the gospel being central, Paul has tremendous joy. Paul even says later, as long as Christ is preached, whether it's from selfish ambition or whatever, as long as Christ is preached, I will rejoice. And let me explain what he means by that. What he means by that is if I'm up here preaching, and let's say I'm actually giving you the true gospel, and this applies in every situation where the true gospel is shared. And this is a testament to the power and the potency of the word of God. If I'm preaching the gospel, but my motives are so messed up, if, if all I want is to be thought of as an eloquent speaker, if I'm just only concerned with how well I'm doing and my motives are so horrible, my heart's in the wrong place, you know, let's, you could even have someone up here that's not even in Christ, right? Now, now that's, that's a dangerous thing, but let's say they're far off, but what they say is right, if truth is being shared, tr the power's in truth, not in the messenger, right? The power's in the message, not the messenger. And this is what Paul is saying. He's going to the lengths of saying, listen, this is how much joy I have in the gospel. This is, this is how many riches I find in the depths of Christ. It is such that if someone is up there for their own agenda and they actually preach truth, there's power in the word of God, there's power in the gospel, and I rejoice in that, no matter what the medium or what, no matter what the messenger is or who the messenger is. So this is why Paul, Paul's writing. So it's a personal letter. 
written while he was in prison. We see all these reasons that he's written it. And so I want to talk to you about the relationship that he had to the church at Philippi. Because this wasn't, you know, just a, "Ah, okay, I know of you. I've been there to preach at your church one time. Paul had a very intimate relationship. He had deep affections for these people. Understanding what it took to establish the church at Philippi is critical in understanding Paul's relationship to the church. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna shift gears just a little bit and we're gonna go to the book of Acts. Because whether you know it or not, in the book of Acts, chapter 16, you get a prelude to the planting of Philippi. You get everything that went on all the way up to the church actually being born, the local church actually being born. And it's a pretty fantastic read. So we're gonna walk through that. So if you can look with me in the book of Acts chapter 16, we'll consider that together. So I've told you Paul had one, two, three missionary journeys, third one ending around 57, and then him being in prison around 61, and then AD 66 is when he was martyred. So let's rewind several years. So we're at Paul's second missionary journey. Now I should have a slide that comes up. And if so, I don't know how well you can see this. I won't use it very long. There's a purple, there's three different colors, uh, color lines, each obviously rep- representing, well, actually there's, yeah. And so these really represent, well, they represent first and second missionary journey, inbound and outbound. So either way, the second missionary journey is in purple. You can see where Paul left in Antioch, which Paul, the argument is that Paul was a part of the, Antio- the church in Antioch and they were kind of the sending church. So uh, for Paul as an evangelist, as a missionary, that would be his home church. That was to be thought of as his home church. So Paul leaves Antioch and you see him rolling around, traveling a lot by land. He's going to Tarsus, going to Derby, He's going to Iconium and Lystra. I told you Lystra, Acts chapter 14. And this is, this is captured as you look through the book of Acts. So, so you see Paul's missionary journeys there. And so then he goes to uh, all the way through Asia. Now something interesting is happening here. And then he ends up landing in, in Troas, right up there at the corner, if you can see it. So, okay, so you got Troas right up there. So Antioch to Troas thus far. So let's get your attention over to Acts chapter 16. Listen to this. The story of how this church came, came to be is, is a story of grace. It's a story of providence. It's a story of persecution. It's a story of, 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 of the miraculous. It's really fantastic when you see how these things come together. It's a story of how God sets his agenda and God sets his purpose. And as the scripture says time and time again, nothing can thwart the plans of God. And this is just one in a host of many that testifies to the validity that God does absolutely what he pleases. So if we start in verse one, it says, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, which we see about midway up the purple line. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So what does Paul do? He circumcises Timothy. I'm sure he was thrilled about that. So he was well spoken of by his brothers in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith and they increased in numbers daily. So Paul leaves Antioch and he goes around and he's encouraging these places. He's sharing the gospel. 
And then just before he ends up in Troas, this is what happens. So you've got Luke, Silas, Timothy, and Paul, the four horsemen, right? They're in the boat, or they're, they're I guess, not in the boat yet. They're making their way, and the Bible says, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden, forbidden, listen, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Messiah, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So let me just stop there for just a moment because I read this and this strikes me. Because God has an intention, God has a plan that he's gonna plant this church in Philippi. And it's interesting that God could still plant this church in Philippi as well as let them stop off in Asia to share the gospel. But the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, it says, said, no, you're not stopping there. You go here. And I think what we take away from this, does it mean that God hates Asia? No. Does it mean that there will never be Christians in Asia? Absolutely not. But it means at God's appointed time, all things come to pass. Nothing is by happenstance. Listen, God does not leave anything up to chance. It's not a roll of the dice. If it is, he controls the dice and where it lands. Nothing is up to chance. This is sovereignty. Now, we don't understand fully God's plan until it comes to pass. And at that time, most of the time, a lot of times we don't even understand why he brought it to pass in that fashion. We don't know. But what we do know is that the spirit of Jesus says, don't go to Asia, I forbid you to speak the gospel. And I think another takeaway from this is, I think it causes us to be cautious. Something may be good and something may not, might not be intrinsically wrong. You might have an opportunity to go on a mission trip, but don't just assume that that is the right trip for you when God might have another agenda for you. I think that's what we can see here. I think we're so quick to rush as Christians and say, well, you know what? I mean, this falls under the camp of Christianity. I'm gonna, I'm gonna dive right into it. That might not be the category that God has you live your life. That might not be the category God calls you to invest yourself in. So what warrant, so what does this warrant us to do? What does this cause us to do? It should cause us to take everything very seriously and come to God and petition him to ask, to seek, and to knock, and to wait and to see what God would have us do. Because that seems to be what's happening here. They wanna go and give the gospel to Asia, but he says, no, don't want you to do that. Because before the foundations of the world, this is the beauty of everything. Before the foundations of the world, God laid out everything, everything. My personal conviction is that the dust that you can't see that floats around, maybe when the sunlight hits the room just right, you can see little bitty dust particles that we are all breathing in right now, my strong conviction, and I think a strong biblical argument is made for the fact that even those dust particles, and Jonathan Edwards made this argument, even those dust particles before the foundations of the world, God has told them where to move and he's told them their place. Now there's a neat compatibility that happens with all these things. And there's a unique, or a unique conversation that we could have in a relationship that there is between real freedom and the sovereignty of God. I get all these things. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, freedom and all of these things 
in a sense, subject themselves to the sovereignty of God because God is in absolute control. So based on that, based on that, how do we define true freedom? How do we define choice? How do we define all those things? Because the backdrop has to be God in control, God's authority, God's sovereignty. It has to be. So somehow, someway in God's providence and God's sovereignty and God's grace, he says, don't go to Asia. He may have others that are gonna go to Asia in the 21st century, But at that moment, before the foundation of the world, he says, on this day, I'm gonna save Lydia on the shores of the Aegean Sea, and I'm gonna use Paul to share the gospel, and that's how she's gonna come to Christ. Because those appointed to salvation believed is what Luke also says in the book of Acts. So I have to believe in the greater context of things, and theologically speaking, that Philippi was the place to go because of what God had appointed beforehand. So God says these things. The spirit of Jesus says these things. He says, stop. Don't go to Asia. Don't go to these places like Phrygia and Galatia. Don't go to, the, don't go to Asia. Don't take the word. And he says, and when they had come to Messiah, they attempted to go into Bethina, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them three times. So they tried to go to these different places. One, two, three, four, five different places are mentioned and Jesus says, no, no, you can't go. Then verse eight, so passing by Messiah, they went down to Troas. So you gotta be wondering, what is, what is Paul thinking? I mean, the spirit of Jesus says, no. How, how would you respond to that? I just want you to think about that for a second. You, you wanna pack up your family and you wanna go to Zimbabwe and you wanna you wanna spend your life loving those people by giving them the gospel, investing in them. And then beyond a shadow of a doubt, the spirit of Jesus comes to you and says, no, don't go. How do you, how do you process that information? Other than saying, okay, there's all these different categories and places I can invest my life in and that must not be where you want me to. Maybe, just maybe, God has some big grand design to reach the nations. And maybe, just maybe, you don't know what that is in full detail. So you accept what God has said and you say, okay, well, I'll keep trying until you open the door. And that's how you operate in that way. But what happens next is very interesting. They get to Troas and then the Bible says that, or Luke's account says that Paul has a vision. This is called the Macedonian call. And the vision was of a man who came to Paul and said, you need to go to Macedonia. Scripture says, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. That's the conclusion. Again, you're asking God, you're getting a bunch of no's, you don't know why. Eventually you get a yes, and then all of a sudden, ah, now I know why. This was his intention. I think I think it should make us be very careful and not so quick to jump at every Christian opportunity we have. So, they arrive in Philippi. Let me tell you a little bit about the city of Philippi. Again, this is all an introduction uh, to the book, so it's a little bit different. So here's the city of Philippi. The founder was Philip II, father to Alexander the Great. I'm sure you've all heard of Alexander the Great. Maybe you haven't heard of his dad, Philip II. Philip II, he seized Macedonia in 356 BC. 
So this is a long time, hundreds of years before Paul arrived on the scene, Philippi became Philippi because it was named after Philip II. Philip II built and modernized his army. He was a big visionary. He wanted to see it expand. He wanted his territory enlarged. He wanted to conquer and take over things. He was a man of determination. And so he comes onto the scene. He seizes Macedonia. He starts to equip his armies with longer spears, uh, charging, uh, give them, giving them a charging cavalry and a and better organization to their armies. He's also sought to expand his domain. But to do this costs money, right? If he wanted to expand, it had to, it, he had to have money to do that. Little has changed, right? So you want more territory, you want more land, it's gonna cost you some money. So what happens is Philip says, okay, I noticed something. Philippi is considered a part of the gold region. There's lots of gold to be mined in Philippi. So what does he do? He goes and as a part of, you know, uh, sorry, Philippi is a part of Macedonia. He has seized Macedonia. So he comes to the Philippi and he says, we're gonna mine this gold. So they mine this gold. And the way that he enlarges his territory, the way that he expands that, the way that he funds the, the, you know, his, 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 his army and, and equipping them in a better way, building up their army in strength and in number, is he goes to all these different places and he bribes them or petitions them with the money in the form of, in the form of gold. And he is quoted as saying this, this shows his, his kind of modus operandi, his, 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 his motivation, you know. No fortress is impregnable, he says, to those whose walls and ass laden with gold can be driven. In other words, he's saying, all you gotta have is money because everybody has a price and that's the way he operated. And he had tons of money because Philippi was rich. It was a gold region. And they took much gold from there and went and they expanded. So this was the city of Philippi's purpose from the outset to provide the means through which expansion could be achieved. 200 years after Philip, or after Philippi was named, Rome conquered Macedonia. So they had a brief stretch. Rome conquered Macedonia Julius Caesar of Rome conquered Macedonia and divided it into four political districts. Macedonia was subsequently governed by Rome. And then something interesting happened. A large battle broke out because you have Rome, right? You have Rome and then there's two different groups in Rome, two different groups of political figures as well as military figures. You have on one side a guy named Brutus and Cassius. On the other side, you have a guy named Octavius and, or Octavian and, uh, and Mark Antony. Maybe you've read about those in history before, but this was a long time ago, right? So you have these guys. One group of guys, Brutus and Cassius, said, we want Rome to be a republic. The other guy said, we want Rome to be, uh, we want Rome to be a, a, a um, oh, goodness. Well, I've lost my, lost my train of thought here, so... Oh, sorry, we want Rome to be an imperial government. So it's, it's wanting Rome to be an imperial government versus wanting Rome to be a republic. So in 44 BC, this marks the pivotal moment in the history of Philippi. Julius Caesar was assassinated. All right, so this was, this was Cassius and Brutus who wanted the republic. They said, okay, we're gonna basically create a mutiny or cause a mutiny. Trying to get the people on side with them, trying to get the people on board, they said, we're gonna assassinate him. 
Evidently, he didn't have the backing that he thought he would have. So what happens? Cassius and Brutus, they assassinated Julius Caesar. The people didn't like that. So then Cassius and Brutus, they flee to Asia to hide. But not only are they hiding while they're over there, they start to build up another army because their intent is once we've got an army built up, we're gonna go back over to Philippi. We're gonna go back over to Rome, yeah, to Rome, and we're gonna reconquer Rome or we're gonna conquer Rome and we're gonna make it a republic, which is what they felt it should be. While they were preparing their army, Octavian and Antony took an army themselves and they go over and they wipe the floor with Brutus and Cassius. Now Brutus and Cassius saw that, okay, this battle is lost, so they commit suicide. Rather than pay the piper, rather than pay the penalty of their their treason, they said, we're just gonna kill ourselves. We're not gonna be put in the hands of these Romans we're gonna kill ourselves. So what happened to the government? It didn't turn into a republic. It, uh, it turned into an imperial governmental system. And you're like, what does that mean? In other words, it means this. The win for Mark Antony, who was a Roman politician and a general, and Gaius Octavius, or Octavian, a Roman statesman and a military leader, the win for them meant that Rome would be an imperial form of government. And that ensured the worship of the deified dead emperor, Julius Caesar. So because it was now an imperial government, this was the way of the day for Rome, is to worship a dead leader, Julius Caesar. So this is the Philippi that Paul arrives in. Rome, Rome, Philippi was, was largely Roman. A lot of the Romans were dumped off into there. And Paul arrives here and he leaves Troas because he gets this vision to go to Macedonia. So he goes over to Macedonia. You probably can't see it, but up here you've got Neapolis, uh, uh, Thasos, and uh, Somathrace. So he goes through there and he ends up right there on the shore of Neapolis in between Neapolis and Philippi. And on that shore, on the Sabbath day, this is what Roman law allowed, On that shore on the Sabbath day, there was a woman who was there. There were actually many women there. It doesn't speak of men. It was understood that maybe there was some kind of a temple there or whatever, but they could go and they would pray to God. They would worship God. And that's how the scriptures presents Lydia. In Acts chapter 16, verse 11, it says, so setting sail for Troas, we made, we, Luke, Silas, Paul, uh, and Timothy, we made a direct voyage to Somathrace, we saw that, and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And then it says, we remained in the city some days and on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. Now Lydia was from Thyatira. Thyatira was a place that it was very paganistic. So she was, her, 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 her beliefs were rooted in paganism or at least at one time. But the scripture interestingly presents her as a seller of purple goods. And it says that she was a worshiper of God. It says she was a worshiper of God. Now here's just a fun fact. This really doesn't really matter about the book of Philippians necessarily, uh, at least that I've seen. So she sells these purple garments. Now Thyatira, there were basically in Thyatira, 
where they would get this dye to make these purple linens because Rome was, a, was big on purple. They love royalty. They love all of these things. So purple was a big to-do. And there was two ways to get this purple dye, a very expensive way and a cheap way. The cheap way is to absolutely kill the fish. Now you get the dye out of the fish. It was a shellfish. You get the dye out of the fish and that fish is dead. So you don't get any more dye. Or you could grab the fish and from the throat of the fish, it would secrete one drop of purple dye, and you would take that dye and you would use it, and you would release the fish so that you had this, you know, continual access to this purple dye. And so she would take the purple dye and save it up and save it up and save it up, and she most likely came from means, uh, the Bible says, in other places. And she would come over to Philippi, knowing that it was a Roman colony, and knowing how the Romans felt about purple, and she made a killing going and selling these purple garments with purple dye. And it says she's worshiping Yahweh. She's worshiping God. But something else happens. Paul comes up to her and it says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. And after that, she was baptized in her household as well. And she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, my understanding of this is that Lydia was not in Christ. My understanding of this was she was much like those who they offered God their homage. They offered God their allegiance with no consideration of the lordship of Jesus Christ. So Paul comes with this message of, hey, you're, you're, you're singing the songs and you're praying the prayers, but it's devoid of, of the one element you need to make the connection, and that's Jesus. So he shares Christ with her. And here's where the grace of the story comes in. We've seen providence, and here's providence again, but here's grace upon grace, is that the Lord, the Lord made it so that she would pay attention to what Paul had said. Just like, just like the Lord interposed himself to the apostle Paul when he was going to get another letter signed so that he could persecute a church. Just like so many other places, the Lord interposed himself in order that he might grant someone salvation. And so this has happened again. I would believe that Lydia was just happy where she could be. She's making a killing, selling these things, and she's worshiping. She thinks she's good to go. How many people have you met that are well off and they think things are going on and you try to give them truth and they just say, get out of my face. I don't need these things. I'm good to go. I'm right with Christ. I've got all these things I need. Go to talk to somebody else that might need something else because I don't need it. I've heard it time and time and time and time again. But Lydia didn't take that posture, did she? Because God graciously said, I will open your heart that you may pay attention. And I'm, and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this I don't know this 100%, but could it be that Lydia, well, I would say it is, could it be that Lydia is the reason there was a no to Asia? Because there was an appointed time for Lydia. The scripture says it's appointed to every man to die. But then it also says, you know, you're appointed to salvation. All those appointed to salvation believed. And before the foundation of the world, God providentially, sovereignty, graciously determined that I'm gonna save her on this day. She doesn't even know what's coming. She doesn't know that there's gonna be some man from Antioch who's been traveling for months and he's gonna show up on the scene and he's gonna start talking to her about the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
and the Lord's gonna open her heart. So it's a beautiful thing, a beautiful story of the grace of God. And this, although there were probably other believers there, this was Paul's first time on soil there, and he starts to share the gospel, and people start coming to Christ. And then shortly thereafter, the local church is, is born. But this isn't where the story stops. Just a few other things I wanna share. So there's the conversion of Lydia, but if you're tracking with me in the book of Acts, there's this persecution element of this. And I won't read it for time's sake, but basically, Paul and Silas, Timothy, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and uh, uh, sorry, Luke, sharing the gospel, thanks Travis, sharing the gospel, right? They're going and doing this. Then there's this demonic woman. It says she had a spirit of divination. But do you know what they said back then? The common, the, the, the vernacular of the time would say she or he, for that matter, had a python. Python's a serpent, right? I mean, there's, there's, it's no accidental thing that's happening here. So she had a spirit of divination or she had a python. She was possessed. And she comes and she starts saying, hey, these guys represent the Lord, These men are serving the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And Paul becomes bothered by this because he doesn't want to basically be promoted by this woman who has a spirit of of divination or a python. And she kept doing this for many days and Paul became greatly annoyed. And he finally turned to her and said, look, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And the spirit leaves, the demon leaves, right? But there are others who saw these things and didn't like it, so eventually they get arrested For some reason, it was just Paul and Silas. I don't know why Timothy wasn't arrested. I don't know why Luke wasn't arrested. I don't know if Timothy and Luke were kind of standing back watching them uh, be be evangelistic. Maybe they were silent but watching, which is fine, right? And so they're arrested. They're taken into custody. They're brought to this deep, dark dungeon. They're placed in shackles and chains on their ankles and on their feet. And what do they do? They start singing. (laughs) They start singing songs. They start singing hymns and praying. That's what they start doing. And I try to place myself in this context and I say, you know, what would our prison system do today? Maybe maybe it happens. What would that look like for someone who's legitimately in Christ to just start worshiping God with all of those surroundings? It's It's a remarkable thing to me. And it's the grace of God, again, in this story that's poured onto them to give them endurance, to give them the perseverance they need to make it through this, because they don't know what's gonna happen. But what did happen was that when they were singing the hymns, this earthquake started to go down, right? Earthquake takes place, the shackles fall off, the gate opens, all the gates open. Prisoners go free, not Paul and Silas, they remain. The prison guard, the jailer's freaking out. He's thinking, they're gonna kill me because I've, I've let all these people go. So how does he respond? He says, I'm gonna kill myself. I'm gonna kill myself just like Brutus and Cassius. I don't wanna, I don't wanna have to fall into the hands of those who, who are my superiors. I don't wanna be subjected to the condemnation or what's gonna happen because of my derelict duties. So he attempts to kill himself. And Paul stops him and says, man, don't, don't do that. I have, a, I have a different solution for you. And so Paul does what he does and he gives them the gospel. And what happens? The Philippian jailer then comes to Christ. But it's interesting. Let me back up verse 28. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, don't harm yourself for we are all here. 
we're here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. So he says, we're all here. So maybe not, all, maybe not everybody, everything opened, but maybe not everybody ran out. Don't harm yourself for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now this just to me shows God's providence and God working. How many times have you come up to somebody that said to you, what must I do to be saved? I mean, really, can you count it on one hand, maybe two fingers? Think about it. How many times in your life has someone come up to you and said, I just want to know Jesus? Let alone a jailer in Rome. And so this jailer submits to Jesus, becomes a follower of Christ, and just like Lydia, he offers hospitality to Paul and Silas. He says he was baptized in his house. That doesn't mean just because he was the head and because he was the, he was the man that everybody was then subsequently baptized. No, no, no. It means that what the scripture is, is, is alluding to is that he goes home and Christ is shared with a family. It just says something about a dad that comes home and a dad that leads his family. There's great statistics out there about the, re- the reality of a father that's leading a home and a, and, a, and a father that is giving the gospel to kids and the statistics of how many kids come to Christ when their dad is actively trying to win their souls for Jesus. It's a big deal. So the story has persecution. It's grace. It's grace that the prison official, that the, that the guard would even respond in this way. There's a miracle that happens. And what this shows is a tremendous amount of hope. And here's something I wanna get at before we kinda of come to a close, is what's, what's beautiful about this is that I've talked about providence, I've talked about grace, I've talked about miracles, persecution, but there's definitely hope in this story. The story of, of, of the birth of the church at Philippi. And that is this. God is making sure that nothing stands in the way of the gospel. And we see this maybe directly, maybe indirectly in the fact that Lydia is intended to get the gospel, but they're wanting to go to Asia. But he says, nope, those five places you mentioned, don't go there, go there. Got somebody right there waiting, prime and ready. Go there, got two people there, right? And then more. But he also does it when we see in the gospels where Peter is called the rock, and he says to Peter, on this rock I will build my church. He says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom, the keys being the gospel, and he says, the gates of Hades will not overcome the church. So we have these promises in scripture, and this is that promise being lived out. Chains, bondage, beatings, those things may happen, but those things will not ultimately stop the progress of the gospel. Because the gospel is not your message, it's the message of Christ. And it is God's agenda, just like Philippi was God's agenda, it is God's agenda that the gospel would be the means of growth of his church, the exclusive means of growth for his church. And you see this played out. So this is a great story. It's grace that God would determine to save anyone, let alone have Paul and these other men spend months in, on end in travels, face persecution and hardships for the sake of uh, the souls of men. 
It's providence of God that led men to Philippi instead of Asia and other places they had planned on going. The persecution of Paul and Silas gives evidence of the reality that we are on a battlefield with a formidable enemy, an enemy who is relentless, he's powerful and who seeks to destroy you and me, an enemy who hates the church. But the story of the Philippian church is one of great hope because despite his best efforts, the enemy's best efforts, the gates of Hades cannot overthrow the church. By grace, Lydia's heart was open to pay attention. God saw fit to supernaturally break the chains away from Paul and Silas and to open the cell to basically ensure the spread of the gospel. By grace, the jailer was going to kill himself but was rescued. At the heart of Paul's letter to the Philippian church is joy. Joy that is rooted in the riches of Christ. Paul sets the tone again at the very beginning. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. There's a strong correlation between joy and the gospel of Jesus. There's a joy of knowing that Christ has given the gospel as the singular means through which man may enter the kingdom of God. There's the joy of knowing that despite the enemy's best efforts, Christ's efforts on the cross and his resurrection ensure the growth of the church around the world. As we explore the letter to Philippians and as we mature as believers, I pray that we may all find the riches of joy in the depths of Christ. Let's pray and be dismissed.